You're listening to an ACCA podcast. So firstly, I'd like to, um, to welcome our guests and welcome Tony Birch to ACCA Book Club, um, which is a new online conversation and podcast series about reading and writing involving authors who've contributed to ACCA publications in recent years, who've been invited to reflect upon and lead a discussion about a written work or works of their choice. My name is Max Delaney, and it's a pleasure to welcome you, and we thank you for joining us this evening. Before introducing today's special guest, I'd like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations as sovereign custodians of the land on which we work and welcome visitors at Akka, and we extend our respects to ancestors and elders past, present and emerging, and to all First Nations people, and we honour and celebrate their long-standing and continuing contribution to knowledge and culture. Art Club is a recent initiative developed to connect with our audiences whilst our galleries are closed and to celebrate some of the wonderful writers, thinkers and commentators who've contributed to ACCA's publications in recent years and to catch up with them again today to find out what they're currently working on or thinking about. It's my great pleasure this evening to welcome and introduce Tony Birch. Tony Birch is the author of three novels, including most recently the best-selling The White Girl, winner of the 2020 New South Wales Premier's Award for Indigenous Writing, Ghost River, winner of the 2016 Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Indigenous Writing, and Blood, which, as with The White Girl this year, was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Award in 2012. And Tony was also awarded the Patrick White Literary Award in 2017. In 2016, Tony contributed to the publication accompanying the Acker exhibition Sovereignty, which is freely available online at Acker's website. Tony is also the author of Shadow Boxing and three collections of short stories, Father's Day, The Promise and Common People. He lives and works in Melbourne, is a frequent contributor to ABC, local and national radio, and a regular guest at writers' festivals. What perhaps unites Tony's work across fiction, poetry, and his work as an essayist is his focus on people and their connection to place, especially the topographies of the Birrarung, the Yarra River, and the greater Kulin area around Nam, the bay, waterways, and country that we now know as Melbourne. Tony's writing is informed by lived experience, as it is by Aboriginal knowledge, geography, and deep time as well as the narratives and relationships between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people since colonisation. For today's book club, Tony has elected to expand upon two essays, Walking and Being and Two Fires, both of which were published in Mianjin in 2019 and 2017, respectively. Tony and I will be speaking for approximately 35 to 40 minutes, following which we'd we'd very much welcome questions from the audience which you can do through the Q&A function, which you can find in the menu bar at the bottom of the screen. So please feel free to send us questions throughout the session via the, via the Q&A function. And my colleagues, Miriam Kelly and Bianca winata Putri will collate these for us to put to Tony. So Tony, um, firstly, welcome. And thank you very much for joining us, which is a, which is a great honour. And it's great to have had such a, an enthusiastic response from our audience as well uh, this evening. Um, thank you very much, Max, for having me and, and thank the audience as well, of course. Tony, in your essay, Walking and Being, you speak of walking as a stimulus to writing, as a means of reflection 
and as a connection to country. And you speak also of the emotionally restorative nature of the forest and the waterways. And I'm also, I'm also aware of your interest in the work of the Welsh writer Ian Sinclair and your fondness for a film by John Rogers called The London Perambulator, which is a documentary on walking which focuses on the somewhat eccentric urban geographer Nick Papadimitriou. So I was wondering if we might start by asking you to reflect on your thinking about walking and writing and how this informs your work. Yeah, I mean, there's a, both a, a Broadway um, aspect of it and a quite specific in relationship to projects. So I'd say in a broad sense, um, walking and running, and um, I've just come from a, a nice long run along the river, um, they act as a sort of meditative stimulus for, for my life and for my work so that um, one of the issues I think for a writer or you know anyone doing creative work and thinking is that the time that you have to what we might call clear your head and to, to sort out the mess of a piece of writing or, or work that you're doing um, is really important to keep you focused on the work. So I've been running and walking, I mean I've been walking my, my whole life, I've never been a person who, who likes to drive and Growing up in the inner city, we always walked everywhere from when we were young kids. So broadly speaking, walking and running have been really important to me for my, for my mental health and for my creative thinking. Um, one of the things that will happen on a walk, and this is not a walk that's purposely created to, to write about, is that if I'm writing at the time, going out and get, getting along the river or other places that I love, it will often work as a sort of a problem-solving device for the creative work that I'm doing. Secondly, if I'm doing work that we might call place-based, and that could be fiction or non-fiction, I have a really strong belief that um, narrative is always being performed in place. So it, it doesn't matter where you go, a story is being enacted there. So places are not passive and life and stories are being performed. So if I were to write a fiction piece, say, set in the inner city or set in the CBD or along the river, I will make a point of visiting those places and literally um, using my observational skills to, to possibly find material for the story. In relationship to the, to the two essays that you're talking about and writing specifically um, driven by walking is that... Pretty simply, there's one issue about going on a walk with the purpose of writing is that the walk becomes the piece of writing. Um, the walk becomes the structure for the piece of writing. I've never done a walk where I intended to write that didn't work successfully because I think that whatever you find or don't find, the walk itself is you performing narrative, you performing and being part of a story of place. So I found them both um, enjoyable um, and I find them incredibly stimulating. And I suppose the other thing to add to that, Max, is that when I think of all the forms of writing that I do, so that, you know, I, I, I write essays. I Until recently, I just retired from academia. I, I wrote fairly rigorous academic essays, which are always a bit of a pain. Um, I write short fiction, novel. I write poetry. I would say that these essays or the, these type of essays, the genre that I'm working in here, it's actually the most enjoyable writing I do. It, it, it seems in a strange way to to require the less effort. So in other words, it comes, it comes fairly naturally and easily. And I have a fairly um, a fairly keen sense of how to write the essay. So although I'll take a look some notes, I write these essays in sort of short poetic bouts of about five hundred words a session and I'll only do five hundred words 
and leave it. So it's also not rigorous in that sense. It's 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 written in a very enjoyable way. So they're the two issues that 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 frame the the writing process. And I suppose the other one, of course, is a firm believer in trying to recover stories of place, whether they be indigenous stories of place or or stories of of other people who are missing from the story of of, of place. Um, I like that idea of going to places where there are forgotten stories, where there are absent narratives and recentering them. So in that sense, that would that would probably, we might say, have a political aspect to it as well as a creative aspect. Tony, further speaking about place-based stories and narratives, um, you've referred to the idea of country as being like a living archive mm-hmm. and a repository of memory holding both the narratives of the past and the knowledge that we require to live with and protect country in the future. Yeah. And, of course, you know, I note the connection to country is primary and existential for First Nations people, um, the reality that people and custom and country are inextricably linked. So I wonder if you might reflect upon the relationship to country in your writing and walking on and writing about country. Well, I think in relationship to these essays, it's quite obvious that one of the issues that I was driven by with uh, um, Walking and Being was to write part of that story around what we might call the, what is called the, the Lower Yarra Basin or where the Birrarung meets Hobson's Bay in the Maribyrnong River. I find it a remarkable part of the, the city because basically it's not only where the, the current Birrarung River meets the Maribyrnong and the fresh water of the rivers meets the salt water of Hobson's Bay and, of course, Port Phillip Bay and then ultimately the ocean. You know, you're talking about water that's coming from the Southern Ocean to some degree. And so this incredible heady mix of ecologies is important to me. The other issue there is that, you know, just below the surface of the water is the old Birrarung River, the Birrarung River that existed prior to the formation of what we call today Port Phillip Bay. So there's a very ancient living waterway um, beneath the surface and I, I want to write about that. And I suppose in a broader sense with that essay where it, where it really traversed the Birrarung, um, I'm interested in the idea that um, yeah, there are people who often think that country is lost in urban areas, so that Aboriginal um, Indigenous country has been lost to the built form. So, mm-hmm. And that's a very narrow view of understanding country because it's as if yeah, once you, you, you know, literally you lay down some cement or bitumen over natural ground and, the, it, you know, the history has disappeared. Well, that's a ludicrous concept if you think that you're talking about a very thin layer of concrete, which might be a few inches thick, where you've got a lot of country underneath it. And then, of course, you have this incredible big sky above. So when I walk around Melbourne, I, you know, unlike some people who think that um, us Victorian Aboriginal people have lost our, well, in the urban sense, have lost our sense of place. I always believe that I'm on Abri- Ab- Aboriginal country and I don't feel I'm on country that is missing, lost or been obliterated. These buildings that are around in the streets, yeah, they're part of the change, but they have never um, but been that powerful that they can stop the forces of history and the momentum of Indigenous place coming to the fore. So part of what I, I want to do in that sense is to say this is a living this is a living Aboriginal place in Melbourne and I want to extract stories that give understanding of that. that. That's one. In relationship to the other essay that I wrote, which is the Two Fires essay, part of that essay was set um, on Turtle Island or what people know as Canada. Um, I was in Alberta and British Columbia 
And th this story will take a little bit of taking, but uh, telling, but it's vital to, to what you've asked. I arrived in, um, on Turtle Island at Vancouver Airport and I was waiting for a plane to go to Calgary. And I picked up the Saturday paper because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for news. And I read this long essay, a, a tragic essay of a First Nations teenage girl who had been living in a tent on the side of the highway and she had died on the side of the highway. They'd found her a couple of weeks after a after a death in, in this little two-person tent. The other two issues that occurred while I was there was the 150th celebration of what they call Canada Day, which the, would be the equivalent of Australia Day. And it was, of course, to celebrate the birth of the white nation of Canada. Um, alongside that celebration was a reminder that 150,000 First Nations children had been taken from their families in that time and placed largely in residential schools or stolen from their family. And, you know, that equated to 1,000 children every year for 150 years of the white nation. So it's a, a shocking indictment. And then while I was there, the Royal Commission into the Murder of Aboriginal Women and, and Girls, as it is titled, was taking place. So I listened to a radio documentary and read reports of the horrific crimes against Aboriginal women and girls of rape and violence and murder. And all of those reflect, of course, aspects of our history here in Australia. So both, it was a very different experience, but in some ways terribly familiar. And I got to the stage after about a week of, of reading and that I, I actually felt quite depressed that I was away from home and I was in a place where I was reflecting on this violence and it was really overwhelming me. Not in the sense that I can't deal with violence, I was sort of alone in a sense. So I didn't know how I could process that. So I went for a walk um, one night when I was feeling sort of at despair. So I went for the long walks that I go for to sort of recuperate. And I was on that long walk. I was walking along what's called the Bow River in um, British Columbia. And it suddenly dawned on me that rather than, because I was saying to myself, yeah, what sort of country is this? And in other words, what sort of country is white? Canada what sort of country is this that would allow these crimes to happen and then I just suddenly realized I shouldn't be asking what country I was in but whose country I was on and I was on the country of what are called the Treaty 7 First Nations groups who are the traditional owners of that part of what is known as Canada and as soon as I had that revelation I didn't feel relieved of the emotion I actually felt there was something energizing on in how I would deal with that emotion of sadness. So I started to do other reading, other readings about the vitality of First Nations community, the great resurgence of First Nations community. I was able to connect up with some First Nations writers and some cultural workers in the town of Banff, which is um, where I was staying, the Banff Cultural Centre. And in the second week that I was there, I actually found myself revitalised, not only by connecting with First Nations people, but by remembering that I was on the country of First Nations people. So it was invigorating. And that, that is really important, Max, because it's not as if you go somewhere for two weeks and you, you leave, oh, I know this place now. You know, I spent two weeks talking to First Nations people and now I'm on top of everything. That wasn't it at all. It was just ex existentially... I, my thinking changed that I could channel my thinking into a First Nation story of place rather than a colonial story of place. So that 
to me was a vital lesson and it's a lesson that I've come back with and partly you think one that I should have known. And I think what it, it tells me is that we all need to know whose country we're on. Mm -hmm. And I stress that I'm not suggesting that by knowing whose country we're on, we, we know, again, we know everything. Oh, yeah, I can understand this country now. We can't do that because country has quite specific um, association with First Nations people and First Nations people from, you know, what we might call the host or home country. So for non-Aboriginal people, I think it's vital that um, they recognise whose country they're on and their way of thinking must be informed by that. The other issue which is important to me, and so uh, we're here in Victoria, we're on Greater Coolan land and you know, around Melbourne, you're probably living on Bunurong country or Wurundjeri country, is that it's not only an issue that needs to be understood for non-Aboriginal people, in places like Melbourne, we have Aboriginal people, of course, from all over Australia. And unfortunately, sometimes that because I think Victoria is often relegated to and Melbourne to a place that sort of, again, has lost culture. There are some Aboriginal people who live and work in Melbourne from other parts of Australia who have also forgotten whose country they're on. And they need to remember that. So they need to remember what their relationship is with us and to have a, an equitable relationship the host nation of whose country you're residing on need to be paid due respect and need to be given the authority of owners of that country. So for me, it's a, it's both practical, it's pragmatic, and obviously for many people, it's deeply spiritual. Tony, speaking about the vitality of the river and, and about your place, um, you grew up in Collingwood and the Birrarung or the Yarra River is very much the backdrop of much of your writing and your thinking. And of course, the Birrarung is also a foundational cultural and ecological story for Aboriginal people of the Greater Kulin Nation. So I'm wondering, I was wondering if you might perhaps expand on your relationship to the Birrarung and to Melbourne's waterways in particular. Well, I grew up, all, I've lived my whole life in the inner city. And um, for the first 10 years of my life, I lived in Carlton and I'm in Carlton now, I've come home. Um, I lived in Carlton and Fitzroy. And I didn't really know the river that well. The river that I knew was that little stretch of river from Princess Bridge down to Swan Bridge where they would have the Moomba Festival each year. It's the only time I would you know, get into the city. We, we didn't move around much when we lived in Fitzroy. And then when I was 10 years of age, I moved. Um, our house in Fitzroy was demolished for slum clearance and a lot of Aboriginal people moved out to the northern suburbs but we were lucky in the sense that we moved to Richmond for a few years and we lived very close to Victoria Street but also very close to the river and I have a, a very vivid memory that um, my first introduction to what I might call the sort of industrial river as I used to call it was that I'd only been there for a couple of days and this kid said I oh, do you want to come down the river and yeah, I'm in the middle of this sort of high rise estate and you're thinking, where could the river possibly be? It, might, you know, it has to be a long mm. way from here. And remarkably, yeah, we left the, the Richmond estate and we were down on the banks of the, the Birrarung, the Yarra, within about 10 minutes. And from that first introduction to that part of the river until I was 21, I was either living very close to the river. So after we lived in Richmond, we lived, in fact, um, behind the Collingwood football ground and literally just above Dyke's Fall. So I was about 100 metres from the river by then. Um, my high school, which was then called Richmond High School, overlooked the river. So I used to sit in class and look out the window and yearn for a swim. Or So 
from that what you might call your formative years from about 10 to being a teenager until I was about 21, I'd be surprised if there was a weekend in summer or winter when I wasn't on the river or didn't see it. And in summer we would, yeah, we'd, we'd swam the river from Princess Bridge all the way up to, to Fairfield. I would have jumped, on, jumped off almost every bridge along that stretch of river. And it was one of those... It was one of those great places for teenagers at the time where there was no there were no bike paths in those days. You couldn't access the river and literally you had it to yourself except for a few homeless men and women mostly and these strange people called bushwalkers that you would occasionally run into. But what's interesting, I suppose, Max, is that it's, I like the idea that when I was a kid, I didn't understand the spiritual value of the river. I knew it as an Aboriginal place, but I knew that through homeless men. And I knew about its attachment to Aboriginal men who I knew who lived on the river, but I just thought it as their home, their place, which mm-hmm. is what I wrote about in Ghost River. Mm. So I had a deep emotional attachment to the river and a real love for it. But it wasn't until later life when I started to literally learn more about, you know, the deep history of, of Wurundjeri and Bunurong country that I really understood the spiritual vitality of, of that waterway. And I like the way that two, those two forms of knowledge came together for me. So my reckless teenage years and my what you might call my intellectual cultural years became a nice, neat fit. So when I walk along the river now and when I wrote about it in um, the, the walking essay that you were referring to, those two sets of knowledge complemented each other really well. And I'm intrigued by the fact that my adult, much older adult intellectual self, it needs that emotional history and that emotional memory to really make those two things work together. Because I think otherwise I would write a fairly dry or, yeah, maybe a sort of a a smart cultural studies essay, which would really not have, for me, for me, the authenticity that I'm able to bring to my writing through Mm -hmm. that life experience. So... Mm -hmm. When I go to the river or if I talk about, and I talked about in that essay about the death of my younger brother and our attachment to the water, um, when I go, I'm interested in the fact that when I go to the river on a summer afternoon or evening and I walk down, usually I go and see my mum in Collingwood and I walk down to Dice Falls. As soon as you're walking down, you get that incredible scent of the river. It is one of those great memory triggers, so it's not a new sensation. I can do recall of my childhood years there very automatically and very easy. So it's not, if you write backstory into these essays, it, there's nothing artificial about it. It's, all, it's as natural as the walk. So that when I do a walking essay where I do, say, a, a timepiece, a memory piece, that will only, I would only apply that to the essay if, if the memory comes back to me um, while I'm walking. And the only other thing I'd say is that while I was not really, I didn't have the deep knowledge of the river as a kid, we had wandered as far up as those amazing billabongs at Kew and Burke Road, which are still there, when we were kids. And we had a great sense of intrigue about them and we knew that they were different than the river. And it is, I've written this in a story, I distinctly remember going up to Kew Boulevard and it was, it, it was just like this quagmire of mud around the water and being covered in mud. And we, 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 set, we became Aborigines. So it's, it's a weird sort of memory, but 
it's almost like there was something in that childhood experience of the billabong that came back to me later in life and i like the way that those two the memory and the contemporary um thinking met quite quite naturally the, the river you've written a lot about the, the changing contours of the river and how they trace the impact of modernity but also environmental de- um, degradation and i think one of the points that you make very strongly across the two essays we're discussing today is the relationship between colonial violence and ecological vandalism. Mm -hmm. And the two, you seem to argue, go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And I'm just perhaps wondering how you see these two um, trajectories playing out today. Well, I think firstly, just to, I mean, a little bit historically is to say the conquest of people and the conquest of land in the colonial mindset go hand in hand. Now, we might say, that well, there's a practicality to that. In other words, that Europeans wanted land to support um, the Industrial Revolution so that yeah, land in Australia is used to run sheep, to, to run cotton and wheat, and that is to supply the industrial machines of, of Europe, um, still yeah, Northern England in those days. But if you look at the y- lower Yarra, as it's called, if you look at the incredible um, intervention in that waterway by the the creation of Kuti Island, for instance, the, 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 the governing of the river, the control of the river. One of the things that happened with that is the loss of incredible um, diverse wetlands, which if you would go to today's Albert Park or what was called the West Melbourne Swamp, there is beautifully expansive um, wetlands, incredible bird life and ecological life, important sites for um, Aboriginal people that were obliterated and turned into a very controlled and manage waterway. Now that that level of control is what we might call to 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 industrialise the river, but I don't think it's just that because one of the um, one of the ideologies governing modernity is about the ability of, of modernity being able to to control, to pacify, um, to to obliterate all that stands in the way of modern society. So it is a it is an ideological political as much as an economic and social construction. So that, I think, in relationship to how we're thinking in a contemporary sense is that even though we might, well, we're certainly aware of climate change and for those who want to accept that it's a reality, there is a, um, a surplus of information available to us. Yeah, there's no way we could suggest that we don't know this story of climate change and um, degradation. And, and yet, And yet, if we look at the way that Climate is still trying to get a a, a a space today. So with you know, everyone writing and thinking about the, the the COVID crisis, there are still pieces where people are reminding us that the, the climate crisis is partly responsible for some of the um, interventions we'll see with viruses like the one we're currently suffering. We have to deal with climate. If you look at the counter narrative of that today, Max. Um, you'll hear people saying, but we'll, we'll ne- we will need to rebuild the economy. We can't let environmentalism stand in our way. And that's another example of, of, of control and conquest, that the economy is everything. And the economy, in the sense of a driving force in a very aggressive way, um, is, is for, for people who have controlled country, in the sense I'm talking about colonial powers, for the past 200 more years or more, their, their um, defence has always been progress is everything. And that hasn't changed. That hasn't changed. And what we're going to face post this crisis, which I think will be sometime next year, is to reassert the need to 
have a very different attitude towards country. And, and, and my climate justice work, Max, is always, I've argued very strongly, if we just think of, if we think about it as an economical issue or even a scientific issue, we will never, I don't think, change what we might call the cultural mindset of the, of, of the greater number of us. We need, a, we need a fundamental psychological, metaphysical shift in the way that we regard our relationship to place. It can't be something that, you know, people often talk about Aboriginal communities and our, our attachment to place as if it's something natural, but I mean that in a negative sense. It's a very deeply philosophical relationship which has a really practical knowledge to it. We believe that place, landscape, country is vital, not simply in a, a, in a spiritual sense because we know by having that respect and deferring to country, we will not only protect country, we will protect society. So it has, that, you know, it has scientific social value. And I think for Western non-Indigenous society, you can't, you need to change people's mindset, not just the way that they look at, at account figures. So that I think it's fine if everyone goes renewable and puts solar on the roof. I think it's great. But I think it's more about saying to people, again, what, what, what sort of country am I living on? What do I want for this country? And one of the things, Max, I could say to you is that I could talk to the most young Aboriginal kids who you know, lack maybe a lot of formal education, who wouldn't be seen as sort of the intellectual thinkers of society. If I say to those kids, is country important to you? Should we protect country? They, they know that. They understand that. And they understand it emotionally and they understand it philosophically even the most marginalized kids now that's the sort of shift that we need a generational shift if we're going to have a fundamental generational shift in our relationship to, to country so you've also written with great insight and empathy about love of family and country um, but also about loss um, and a deep sense of mourning and recovery and in these two essays, you reflect on the loss of your brother, the loss of country and culture and family experienced by First Nations communities, um, the loss of a house, possessions or loved ones through bushfire, um, the loss of vital places and ecologies, and also the loss of the political will to combat climate change. Um, but on the other hand, um, you also find space for hope. And, um, and you note, and I, and I hear quote, um, you note how remarkable it is that people who have lost almost everything, be they the victims of a bushfire or Aboriginal people defending country their whole lives, find ways to recover and more than recover, they're able to extend generosity and support to others. So I, just, I wonder if I could ask you about that resilience and that sense of generosity as well as repair and care. Yeah, I mean, I think um, just in the first instance, I, you know, one of the essays begins in, in Japan, in Kyoto, one of my favourite cities. I wish I got trapped there during COVID. <laughs> I was supposed to be in Japan in June and I thought if I'd only got there earlier in the year and then they locked down, I could just be sitting in Kyoto going for my favourite run and I, I just get people to send me money, you know, I, I would have had a... <laughs> so it's interesting because that really interested me because... I was in Kyoto not long after my younger brother died and 
I'd ummed and ahed about going because it was only about a month after his death and I, I wasn't sure if I should go, but it was probably the one city in the world I could be in other than home if I, if I wanted to um, deal with grief because not only was I given a lot of time to myself and it's a, very, it's a very peaceful city. The Japanese people I was working with around my fiction and talking to students, the guy who'd got me there knew what had happened because I had written to him and said, yeah, we, I may not come and told him why. I wasn't sure. The respect that they paid to my to my grief was astounding. And, and you know, people talk about the Japanese as very formal and sort of cut off from Western society or from visitors. I actually found the opposite. While we had a formal relationship in some senses, their, their respect for what I was dealing with was very, very intimate and genuine. And what I found to my surprise by a, a run that I did each morning in Kyoto is that I could find my brother there. And that surprised me that I would have thought the only way to find my brother in place would be to walk along the Birarung because that was our place. But it was remarkable to be in a, in a foreign place, although I'd been to Kyoto previously, I actually found that he was there. And, and it, was, it was a deeply emotional experience, but it was one that was allowed me to feel, again, very attuned to myself. It's a bit like... The, the same revelation I had at Bow River in British Columbia when I realised that I had a connection to a, a seemingly foreign place, it, it gave me a bit of an emotional anchor. And I think that's important for all of us to reflect on. We don't need to be in places that we know fundamentally. What we need to do is, is discover or find something that gives us traction with a place, even if it's a place we've never been before. And I think that can happen. So... When I came back and I, I wrote about Wayne and in relationship to the river, that was a remarkable exercise in recovery so that um, the run that I did today, this afternoon, I, I, I think it's important to say this to people. I found an urgent need about a, 10 days after his death to walk this particular section of the river and I felt that it would be recuperative and I would do it once and it would sort of, I don't know, I'd get rid of something. And I did that walk. And while I was walking along the river, I felt, yeah, this is really important. And I was remembering sites along the river where we'd mucked around as kids. And then as I was walking back up from Dyes Falls to my mum's place for a cup of tea, my first thought was, I've done it. I've sort of, you know, I've gone through some ritual. And what was interesting is that I'd only got another 100 metres and I thought, I have to go back tomorrow. And I spent months running along about an eight-kilometre stretch of the river, which I did today, every day. And when I got home, I'd get in bed and, I, and then I'd visualise the walk. I'd map it out in my head. And it, was, it was one of those things that I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but it became sort of, I was working my way back into country by doing that. And by the time that I'd stopped doing it, and I, I still do it occasionally, but not with the same ritual habit, I found that it was just a remarkable way to deal with grief. So, so that was the therapeutic aspect of it. The other point that you raise, though, that is important, this is not romantic at all, is that when I wrote the Two Fires essay, part of the essay was set at Christmas Hills outside Melbourne, and it was a gathering of Aboriginal people and survivors of the horrific um, Black Saturday bushfires. And it was, again, it was one of those m magical days where... Everyone in this room, there was about 200 of us who had gathered to listen to a whole day of Aboriginal writers. So there was myself, Bruce Pascoe, um, Alexis Wright, 
um, remarkable people, David Wanden, who gave the introduction. Um, I've never been in a room where I felt there were so many with some mutual respect and connection. And it was that these people in the room, non-Aboriginal people, some of them had nothing. They'd lost everything because of the fires. And they understood what it was. They knew what it was for Aboriginal people to lose so much. So it was about this mutual recognition. And when I left that um, day, this guy drove me from Christmas Hills back to Altham Railway Station so that I could get to the MCG for a twilight game of football. And he was such a beautiful, gentle man. And I didn't realise, well, I may have known beforehand, but he was a man who'd lost everything. He, had, he left his burning house with a, with a, the classic shirt on his back. And I thought, considering this person had nothing left, his spirit was remarkable. So I think what it was about that day is that everyone who, who had lost something, whether it be family, land, um, the loved ones, because these people, yeah, people had died up there, is that it wasn't a day of mourning, it was a day of great energy. And I, I did say to you, Max, for the audience when we met yesterday, if they had allowed us 200 people to, to govern the country for a week, we would now live in, <laughs> we would live in a great nation. And one of the frustrations of those sort of magical moments is they then dissipate. So that you think, I'll take this away with me. I, yeah, there's knowledge here that I can take away, and you do. But then as the further away you get from it and you get back into mainstream society and you're dealing with recalcitrant politicians, you're dealing with crazy redneck people, you're dealing with a rampant populist right-wing media, you go back into battle, and those battles take an enormous toll on you. And I think for me as a, as a, a person who loves to collaborate with people, who loves to cooperate with people, I'm not interested in conflict. So when I want to work, I want to work with people who are like-minded. You know, as you would know, working at ACA, you know, some people say artistic you know, tension is great in a collaboration. Forget about it. I'm not interested in it. I've got enough conflict in my life, or historically have. And I think I love working with people who are like-minded. And, and to, to conclude is that I'm not being nostalgic or romantic about loss. When you've lost a loved one or lost your home, it's, it's a lifelong experience of grief. The real issue is what is it that allows people to live with grief is their connections to other people. You don't have that sense of isolation. And what I witnessed that day was people who had, had, were living with incredible grief knew that they were with a group of people who, who, where this care was everything. Tony, that's, that's actually, actually perhaps, perhaps a very, very timely, timely moment, moment to introduce an additional question received from Alison Young, who you might know from Melbourne University. I know Alison Young. She takes photos around the back streets of Fitzroy. She does. And, and, um, and it follows on from um, your discussion before about remembering and mourning the loss of your brother and being in Kyoto and the narrative around the pine cones. And Alison asks, um, in walking and being and elsewhere, Tony writes about the way that small objects contain memories of people and places. Hmm. It'd be great to hear more about the way these small objects can act as emblems or icons that sustain connections to lost or missing or absent people and places. Yeah, and I think it's, that's, thanks Alison, it's really important. I think the first thing to note, it comes from, it does come from a lifelong habit. So that I've suffered op shop fever 
for all of my life, thanks to my grandmother in the first instance. And one of the things I used to always be intrigued about as a young kid going to the Salvation Army was that what, why were these things being available to buy? Yeah, why would people have got rid of this stuff? Yeah, whether it be a woolen jumper, because people know about my wool fetish, a woolen jumper, a secondhand book, an ornament. As a kid, like about five or six, I, I used to think, why are these things here? Yeah, I would never get rid of these things. And, of course, then I would buy them. And I would be intrigued almost that they were orphans. These were objects had been discarded. And, of course, I know now why people get rid of them because you've got too much stuff. Um, so I would always attach meaning to the things I bought. So I would never buy something in a shop as a kid, a second-hand thing, and just think, oh, I like the colour of that, I like the look of that. I would, I would attach a story to it. So that was something that intrigued me from a young age. The other issue I think that's relative is that I've had lifelong obsessions with particular objects and the ones that I've written about are certainly the, the gathering of pine cones and beach glass, which is another favourite of mine, which I've been doing for a long time. And I think it's interesting about the pine cones because, you know, when I, I've run around Princess Park for 40 years and, you know, I've, I've seen pine cones there for 40 years strewn across the park. There are pines are an invasive species. so. Um, I don't know what it was, Max. One day about 20 years ago, I was running around the park and I saw a pine cone and I had this strange epiphany that I had to take it home. And I literally ran another lap of the park worrying, will it still be there when I get back as if you know, someone's going to want this pine cone, which is ludicrous. Yeah, there was a hundred of them. So I took the pine cone home and they, they became these talismans for, for the way that I, I saw the world. They Weirdly, I found them quite nurturing and I, I can't explain that. It doesn't make any logical sense. And I think to, to go to Alison's point, these obsessions or interest in objects, sometimes it's it's understandable. Yeah, with photographs, I've got a photograph of, here of me taken when I was much younger and no less, no more handsome. That's outside Tiamo's actually. Um, you look at a photograph and you remember the day, there's something about it, you can build a story around it. I understand that. But a lot of the objects that I've become a collector of, yeah, like beach glass, you think, well, there are thousands of pieces in these bowls I have. Yeah, what's the difference between one piece or another? Mm. And again, in a logical sense, it's not. I think it's that for me, they, they, they do become emotional anchors for my life. So I've suffered, you know, occasionally sort of depression and slightly deranged um, <laughs> views of life. And I think that the collecting and the nurturing, it's, it's, I often think that I'm again gathering these orphans that no one else, no one else wants. The other thing, though, and I think would would I think Alison would understand this, and I hope your your audience, in a really practical sense. When I went to Kyoto and I, I found these beautiful small pine cones, which I actually bought home, one of them I bought home, is that it's that strange thing that happens, and it's relative to walking, Max. That when I saw these pine cones. My mind says, someone must have placed these here for me, surely. Because as soon as I saw them, there were six of them. And I thought of me and my brothers and sisters and my brother who died, there's six of us. And it's like someone made, yeah, put these here for me so it would work in a piece of writing. You know, it's like weird. So and then when I left them and came back and there was a little girl playing with them, again, it's like, this is remarkable. So I think the other thing about collecting stuff it's amazing to the extent that when you collect the way that I do and you don't know why, you should never think why. 
don't worry about why because somewhere in down the track the value of those objects is going to come back to you maybe in another place maybe in another time maybe with another person and i think it is again that these are these are fragments or moments in a story that never ends a never-ending story there's a good title for a film <laughs> and your whole life they reconnect with you so i imagine that both thinking about pine cones and beach glass and other stuff i'm sure that there'll be moments in the future where they will it's like they will catch up with me so it's not a logical um thing that i do it's 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 emotional trust i think which totally which possibly um relates to another question we've received from nina mile um and she's actually it's really relating to the form of your writing and the form of your essay in particular and she's interested to um ask um in your drawing inspiration from the discursive and dilatory logic of the birarung she sees that reflected in the way that you weave seemingly disparate tributaries of thought slowly together over the course of an essay so that by the end they 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 come together and they swell into the illumination of the conclusion so she's yeah. wanting to ask um if you could speak a little more about the form of the works their meandering reflective logic and how much you take from the river itself in deciding the structure of a text yeah that's a, that's a really good question so the one of the things i'd say at the outset is the walk becomes the structure for the essay and mm. i found that and again i i that's not a self-conscious process so that if i've set out to write an essay about a place i will want to do a, a long walk on on the day that i think might be the sort of pivotal storyline and i will allow the the walk itself to reveal its own structure and it's one of the things and it's not an aside but just to to throw in it's remarkable the extent to which when i do a walking essay the the structure not only creates itself but it is so i'm surprised at how easy it is to recall and when i do a walk and i sit back to write it i of course of course i'll have notes and i take a lot of photographs just for documentation when i think about how the essay might be framed and initially i might just visualize it i can almost see the walk and therefore see the essay so that that structure works effectively but i think the real really um the vital issue in the question that that, that we picked up is that it is the extent to which when you begin the essay or when you think of the 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 relationship between different events landscapes place memory objects is that they might seem a bit disparate i'd say in the first instance is that i i ignore the i ignore what i think might be a disconnection and have faith a bit like i just spoke about the pine cone that i don't know why i picked it up but it, i'll i'll work out why down the track so that when i start to write the essay i'm not sure if it's going to work i suppose it'd be the simplest way to put it um i said at the at the opening today these this form of writing has been the most enjoyable and when i say easiest i'm talking about a sort of natural flow not to use a pun um and i i think that what happens is i have faith in the process that it it all worked out in the end so there's a lovely in that question there's a lovely visual illusion of you imagine all of these tributaries seemingly you know disconnected and then suddenly or at some point they end, they end up in a central waterway um so i i put faith in that having said that like any writer um if i'm writing an essay like this and i i think okay i might put something in here about the billabong 
and then I feel it doesn't work or the connection isn't made, like any piece of writing, I'll just, I'll take it out. And I think that's just a natural, um, a natural acceptance that a writer, you should never feel that you've, you've got command of the story you want to tell. You try to get there, but you never quite get there. And sometimes a scene, an idea, you don't get there at all. And you don't want that to be left there to the detriment of the essay just because you think it's important. But I think in, in regard to the question, I think it's in this case, the the beer, the beer run or the river is the, yeah, and I, again, I'm not being, this is not a pun, it is such an artery to hold this essay together. You have confidence in the structure working because of, uh, of the river. I mean, an, an interesting thing to, to throw in here would be you would think if you start this essay in Kyoto, it's not going to make any sense. So I think that's an important point in relationship to the mm. question. So for me, when I wrote that first scene in Kyoto, although I have a little caveat at the start what I was supposed to be writing about, mm. My initial thought was it may not work, but I will write it anyway and I could always not have it there. Because I'd written about my love for my brother and that deep experience that morning in Kyoto, I certainly hoped it would work because I wouldn't want, I didn't want that story to, to not be there. And then when I finished the draft, I thought, no, it's there. And I suppose, again, going back to the importance of a really good question, it's the thing that it's a thing that governs all my work is that I write on the, with the belief that I have a generous reader. Now that requires me to write generously and intelligently. I don't write in a sloppy way. I write for a reader who I think has a spirit of generosity, has an independent sense of thinking. And let's say the, the, the first section with writing about my brother in Kyoto mightn't seem like the neatest fit. I think a generous reader might think this may not seem like the neatest fit, but I understand what Tony's doing here. Rather than, you know, uh, a student you might have in a writing workshop that says, I don't know why you put that first bit in about your brother. It just makes no sense because you ended up in Westgate Park. That's ridiculous, you know. So you're looking at a, a, an open-minded um, reader. And one of the things that I learned of teaching creative writing for so long, Max, was that the best writers that I taught were the most generous readers. And I, I'm not saying generous in the sense they excuse bad writing, is that they were generous in that I think generous readers, and this might sound obvious, but we forget it, generous readers want to enjoy a piece of writing and they want it to work. Generous mm. readers go into bat for the writer and they want the writer to succeed. So that they're, as long as you've got a reader, and that's the, I hope on that sort of reader, you, you can have faith in the writing process because you're working your relationship will be someone who's going to reciprocate the act of generosity. Tony, I've got a couple of questions from um, our audience as well as a couple more to conclude. But um, while we're speaking about language and writing, um, from Susan Conn, she has two questions. But the first question is, um, what was an early experience where you learned that language has power? And secondly, um, a related question from Kathleen Birrell, um, would you describe your writing as engaging in a reframing of our collective obligations to country? Um, in the first instance, it, it, might, it might disappoint the questioner or the audience. I actually, I understood the power of language through being an altar boy in the Catholic Church. And as much as um, 
I'm more lapsed religiously than Richard Dawkins. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things that I, I loved about being an altar boy, and I was an altar boy at All Saints Church in Fitzroy near the cop shop there, um, I love the, the performative aspect of the Mass so that we did a lot of funerals for the Italian community. In those days, I'm so old, Max, that the Mass was in, Matin, the mass was in yes. Latin and most of the church guys were Italian. So, yeah, I was the only person in the church who didn't understand a word of what was going on. Yeah, I've but, attended Latin Mass myself. Yeah, so I love, the, I love the ritual, I love the performance, but I love the language. And one of the things that, again, and this is not... It's not nostalgic, it's not romantic, and it's not a sort of to uphold religion. But when the, the priest used to go through that ritual of communion, this is my body, this is my blood, and it's interesting that blood comes up a lot in my writing, including, of course, a, a title of a novel. It was incredibly powerful to hear that, and I think that it, it's poetic, it's performative. And one of the things that I've always done as a writer is to have enormous um, confidence in the power of the single word. Or yeah, just a couple of words. If if you if you write well and you know where to place language, you can yeah, one word can hold a hold an essay together, can hold a poem together. So I think yeah, I understood that from a young age. Um, and the question is it from Catherine Birrell? Was it? Yes. Um, um, she's asking if you describe your writing as engaging in a reframing of our collective obligations to country in the face of stagnant political inaction. Yeah, and well, it goes back to, to an earlier comment I made too that are related is that, yes, I firmly believe if we're going to live in this country in a, in a better way, and I mean that ecologically, of course, in relationship to time, climate justice, if we're going to live in a more equitable way with each other, I think we actually need to privilege the authority of country. In other words, we need to defer to country. Mm. Um, in another essay that I've written which also touches on the funeral of a, f a friend's father, I was given a stone to, to take home from the funeral, an offering, a stone that the um, gentleman used to keep on his desk. And when I was carrying this beautiful, heavy stone home, I actually thought this stone is much more intelligent than me. Yeah, this stone is going to be around a lot longer than me. And whatever the batterings it takes from environmental damage, its ability to survive is, is greater than mine. And I actually think you have to take that humility to country, that country is much stronger than we are. And all our attempts to destroy country will have a devastating and detrimental effect. But, yeah, we're going to be we'll knock each other out before we destroy country. So I think that's that's one aspect. But of course, it's the other way, whether it's spiritual or, or practical. It's just max on a day-to-day -day level is to say we live on country that we respect and we value. Therefore, there's great potential to respect and value each other. So they were interaction with people on a daily level while we're walking around the city, while we're walking around the river, is to be better people because that's what country is asking of us. And if we don't treat each other with value, I truly believe that we we are we're disrespecting country, and yeah, this is why I said earlier. I, I think it's it's a message for non-Aboriginal people, but it's a message for Aboriginal people as well. When we as Aboriginal people live or visit the country of other Aboriginal people, we need to respect and value that and know our place. And I'm disappointed that. Yeah, there are Aboriginal people in Victoria from other parts of Australia 
you know, whether they be academics or in various fields of the arts and writers who have forgotten their place. And as a writer and a thinker, I hope that I would never do that. So when I go to other Aboriginal people's country, the first thing I have to consider is to not say much and to listen, to, mm -hmm. to, to discover my place. And in the two fires essay, it was again going quietly about that, that river and thinking, you know, how can I be both step lightly here and learn while I'm here? And that's, that's what we should all be doing. But maybe I'm an optimist, as you said earlier, is that I would hope if we respect country more, it, there's a potential that we will be better people because we'll respect each other. Tony, that's almost a very beautiful place to finish. We've got a couple, a minute or two left. Um, just perhaps finally, um, you know, following on from the idea of listening and, and respect, um, you know, I do see um, optimism and hope in your, in your writing and in your thinking and in your activism. Um, and in particular, it's perhaps in the re-centering of Indigenous knowledge um, but also I think you've, you know, in recent works, including um, The White Girl, it's the centering of um, matriarchal wisdom, but also the, um, I guess, the faith you have in, in the younger generation, the next generations. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, and the, yeah, I'll conclude on this. I think there are, though, I hope I don't take too long. Um, people will probably want to have their dinner. Um, but there are several issues that are important here to raise is that one, to me, it's irrelevant if I'm an optimist or a pessimist. And people often ask this in relationship to climate work or you know, trying to combat colonial violence or, or whatever the issue is. And I don't really think it matters if I'm optimistic or pessimistic. I think the only thing that matters is the work. So you just keep doing the work, um, whether it be your creative work, um, collaborating with young people, as I've done in the past with groups like SEED. Um, yeah, I've got five adult children and grandchildren, so I, I see I have a role to not to educate them but to work with them. So I I don't stop to think, you know, does the future look optimistic or pessimistic? I just think this is what I'm doing, and I'll keep doing this as long as I can. And I I'm I'm really um, in that sense I'm I'm I've been taught by Aboriginal women, many generations of Aboriginal women who I think did that. They were. Um, they were constrained in their life by being forced to live on missions and reserves, and yet they ran an incredibly... I can see someone coming in the room. They, they ran an incredibly vital political and cultural campaign from the kitchen tables. And these women had no rights. They had no... They, you know, my job is easy, Max. I can, if I want to... I, you know, people ask me to speak all the time. I can get a, a platform any time I wanted. If I said to yeah, The Guardian, look, I really want to write this piece about colonial violence, they'll give me space. Here we're talking about Aboriginal women who couldn't get their voice heard anywhere, so they sat at a kitchen table and wrote letters of demand to government on the back of brown paper bags and sent them in the mail, you know, demanding rights for their children and families. So when I think about what those women did for decade after decade, I just think, well, what I do is easy. I don't feel that my, you know, my life's not under threat. It doesn't take a lot except to, to think that I have a role to play. Um, a wonderful Aboriginal matriarch, um, Eleanor Harding, um, who was an old, you know, she, Auntie Eleanor came from Darnley Island, but she lived in Fitzroy since the 50s and Destiny Deacon's mum. Yep. Yeah, Janine Harding's mum, Johnny Harding's mum, um, Deborah um, Deacon's mum, you know, um, Clinton's mum. Yep. Yeah, so all her children are, are remarkable. Well, I knew Auntie Eleanor my whole life. 
And when I went to university, I was an adult. You know, I was 30 when I got there. And she said to me, yeah, she said, for, geez, for a kid from the gutter of Fitzroy, you're pretty good at this writing stuff. And I said, yes, she goes, well, that's going to be your job. And she was saying, this is your job, to, to speak for people who haven't been able to speak. So I take that as an incredible privilege. So, so that's the, the, the first thing. But the second thing is to say I take great um, courage from those women and I think that those Aboriginal women are still the, the driving force of both political and cultural action. But I suppose finally it's what you said in relationship to young people. So I've been associated with people in the um, climate justice movement I've been associated with groups of people from Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance who organised both the um, Invasion Day rallies, um, shut down Melbourne rallies and other events. And what I see there is that I don't see myself as having a sort of an, you know, an uncle or elder role. It's one, if people think there's something I can do to help, I will. But I think for people of the older generation, it's also partly about not demanding authority, not demanding a space to speak. And I'm very aware that as I get older, when people ask me to do stuff, Max, if I feel there's a younger person who is far better equipped to deal with that, whether they're more attuned to it or whether their voice needs to be heard, I will direct that person to the younger person. So we need to get out of the way sometimes and make sure the young have their, their space. And as you know, a friend of mine, good friend of mine, Gary Foley, says they need to be able to make mistakes they need to be able to get it wrong because by giving them the, um, the responsibility to, to talk, they're going to make mistakes that they will learn a great deal by. And if we keep demanding that, you know, listen to your elders or listen to your uncles or whatever, we're not giving those young people the, the opportunity to speak for themselves. And I think it's one of the great balancing acts in Aboriginal communities because we do respect our elders, we do respect older people. But from my perspective, that has... In a way, I, the people say, for instance, that Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance, I said to them, if you want my help, you ask me and I will be there. If you don't want it, I'm not going to demand, hey, you know, give me space to talk. So I usually, I wait. Yeah, if they have a rally, I go, but I go as just a supporter. If they want me to speak and I think there's something I can add to a conversation, I will. But generally, I, I want them to lead. And if we don't allow young people to take that responsibility up now, um, it's hard for them to catch up. So I, I have great faith in young people. Um, and the the sort of, I think it was Ida Buttrose last week talking about young people being a bit soft. I, I couldn't um, disagree more. Um, we've got kids the same age, Max, actually know each other. And um, my young kids have great resilience and they have great political nous. And what I know of the younger generation that I'm associated with, they have a great... Um, they have a great sense of ethics and politics. So I, I, I just think um, I feel blessed as an older person to be around young people who are so passionate about um, issues of social, you know, social equity. Tony, that's a very inspiring place to conclude. Um, thank you so much for your um, wonderful writing, your inspirational storytelling, your activism, intellect and creativity. Um, thanks for your love and care for people and country. Um, and for inspiring us to rethink our relationship to each other and to the land in which we live. Um, thank you also to all of our guests for having joined us this evening. Um, we hope you will also join us again for the next session with Wadja Balak, writer, artist and curator Kat Clark on the 12th of August. And also um, at the end of this session, there is a survey that will pop up and it's really helpful if you wouldn't mind um, 
uh, filling that survey out. It's helpful for us for future programming and, and support. Um, but once again, um, metaphorically, if I could say on behalf of us all, Tony, um, thank you very much um, for joining us and for your generosity and your work. Can I just say, um, and I just want to say thank you also. Um, I know these these Zoom events, some people find them a bit tiring and there's apparently me, you and 55 people there, but we can't see any of them. So it's it's uh, we all know it's odd, but I think that people are doing remarkable stuff during this shutdown. People are doing very creative work. And I want to thank ACA for putting the program together because we are physically isolated from each other. But I think what these... Um, gatherings do is they they allow us to be socially and intellectually connected while we can't socially um get about together i would say to people in the audiences it's not my my ideal way of performing so when we get back to to life as normal you anonymous 55 people if you've seen this and want to have a chat further about it and see me walking down the street or running around Princess Park, I'm quite happy to, to, to have a, a discussion in person anytime. So I want to thank you. I want to thank um, um, Max, but also um, Max is, of course, front of house, and there are a number of people at ACA who have, have really been responsible for putting this together, who I've been talking to. So I want in, to thank all of the ACA staff. In particular, uh, Miriam Kelly and Bianca Winata Poetry. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank, Tony, thank you very much, and thank you, everyone. Okay, bye. All, all the best. Keep well. Yeah, you too.